This is Small Talk with 101 ESPN's Michelle Smallman. Hi there, and welcome into Small Talk. I'm your host, Michelle Smallman. You have hit episode 14 of Small Talk, and we're going to have a little bit of a different feel this week. I'm going to visit later in the pod with my friend, Jen Lotta. She's incredibly talented. You've probably seen her on ESPN hosting SportsCenter. You might have seen her on College Football Live, or maybe you've caught one of her memorable features on College Game Day. Most of the time, I just have my media friends on this pod to talk about... Honestly, I don't even know what we talk about half the time. Basically nothing. Um, But one of the fascinating things about all of us is our paths to this career. How we ended up behind the mic or behind the glass. How we ended up in these chairs. Because every single one of us has a different road. Every path is different and strewn with different challenges. And Jen has a very unique story and an inspirational one at that. And you're going to hear it a little bit later. But first, let's get old Tommy Freeze Pops on the line and we'll do three random things. Tom, what's up? Hello. Okay, so for random thing number one, I mean, this is an obvious one. We have to follow up from our conversation last week about Emojigate, about the girl. Emojigate, yeah, oh my God. Let's call it Emojigate. Did, I like it. Context for those who may not have listened to the last pod, if you haven't, go back and listen to it. But Tom spent a lovely night with a young lady. She texted him the following morning after he left saying... Uh, miss you already. He responded with the blushing smiley face emoji and said, when are we going to hang out again? And then he never heard back from her after that. She ghosted him. So he was wondering if perhaps the emoji wasn't the right call. And the advice that I gave him was, hey, just follow back up. Find something that you guys had talked about when you hung out. Get back in there. Jump back in the water. So, Tom, what what happened? (laughs) Did you text her again? Have you spoken to her? Okay, so the follow-up to this isn't that exciting, unfortunately, because a, a few days went by, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to call her. And I called her, and we had a great talk, and we're probably going to hang out on Friday. So th- there really was no exciting follow-up to it. I completely ignored the fact that she didn't text me back. I didn't bring it up at all. And we had a nice conversation, and... We're moving on. It's, it's, so it was a whole lot of uh, worrying for nothing. As, you know, so. one tends to do when they're new in the dating game. But, okay, yeah. we got to unpack this a little bit. Number one, smart play by you to not bring it up. That would have made you look yeah. a little insane. Two, mm-hmm. I love that you took the initiative to call her. I feel like guys do not call girls anymore these days. They just want to shoot them, like, the easy text, be like, respond at your leisure. But I think that that shows a lot of um, old-school initiative by you to just go ahead and give her a phone call. Well, that was my thought, honestly. I, I, I know that texting is a lot safer. So I figured, you know what, I'm just going to put myself out there. I feel like it shows the girl that you uh, actually really care and that you, you really want to hang out with her if you're willing to give her a call, which sounds kind of crazy. Like, oh, you know, this guy really showed he wants to hang out with me because he called me. Whereas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. I'm sure our parents would look back at that and be like, yeah, that's how you talk to people. Right. But, you know, it's just a different world. And, uh, yeah, the phone call worked out great for me. So she's uh, coming up to Boston on Friday. So we'll she's see shipping what up to Boston? Yeah. Well, that's the plan. I mean, there's still some kinks for working out here. Uh, but, yes, Boston Friday should be good to go. When you called her, did she pick up immediately, or was there there the awkward, you left a voicemail, then she called you back situation? <laughs> no, 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 no. No voicemail. Come on. What is this, 1997? No. I, I, she picked up after, like, one ring. It was pretty quick. Oh, good. Well, what yeah. if she didn't pick up, you wouldn't have left a voicemail? 
Um, see, that's interesting. I I had in the back of my head what I would say if it did go to voicemail, but I was pretty confident she was going to pick up. I just I just felt I just felt like I knew she was going to pick up the phone. You got some swag. I, here, I don't know. I, like I, I was kind of I was kind of I was kind of cocky about it. I don't know. What was the pre-scripted voicemail? <laughs> oh my god! Don't make me do this. Of course, hold on. Like... Hey, it's so and so. Can't pick up the phone. <laughs> Leave a message after the beep. Beep. Hey, so and so, Tom. Just uh, calling you to see how you're doing. Wanted to see if you wanted to hang out later this week. So uh, I'll try you again in a few uh, hours. Damn it! No, I wouldn't have said that at the end. <laughs> If you don't something pick up, along those lines. If you don't pick up that time, I'll find you. <laughs> if you don't pick up that time, I'm going to drive to your house. <laughs> oh my gosh, please tell me that you, that was not part of the script that you just ad-libbed right there and it went horribly wrong. No, 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 no. No, it, it, there was no script. It was just kind of in my head. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll kind of play it off cool, you know. Oh, yeah, I'll try another time, something like that. I definitely wouldn't have text followed up with the call, you know. I don't like that move. Right. Well, I think the universe did you a favor, Tom, by having her pick up, because I don't know if the voicemail would have gone over <laughs> as well. Uh, but I commend you for the call, and I'm excited that you're going to hang out with her again. So if it develops into yeah. anything, you got to let all of our lovely listeners know. Yeah, for sure. I will uh, I'll definitely let you guys know if uh, something comes of this. Okay, so let's move on to random thing number two. So I am getting ready to go on a long vacation. Um, I'm going to Chicago, and then I'm going to Italy for a little over a week, and I'm very excited about it. It's very much needed on my end. But I find that I have been so incredibly stressed about the packing scenario. You know, I have this itinerary. I'm going with seven of my friends. It's like a big group trip that we're doing. And with a group that big, you kind of have to map out an itinerary. You can't just roll into places in Capri and be like, hey, table for eight, uh, like your your peak time, you know? So we've made a lot of reservations. We kind of have like a general idea of what we're going to do. So that's helpful when it comes to packing because you're like, hey, I know what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to need a swimsuit. I'm going to need a, a going out outfit or whatever. But just the tedious process of having to make the list of what to pack and put it all together. And then you're like, okay, I need, you know, my passport and I need pl- conversion plugs and I can't forget to call my credit card company and I, I need to call my cell phone provider. All of these things you need to do packing for a trip is the worst. And then I thought to myself, but you know what else is the worst when you get back from a trip and having to unpack? So I pose this question to you, Tom. What do you think is worse, having to pack for a trip or having to unpack from a trip? This is this is very easy for me. I hate unpacking. Really? Hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it. I don't mind packing because I'm kind of excited for the trip when I'm packing. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I need... Uh, this amount of pairs of underwear, and I need this many socks. I, you know, oh yeah, it's going to be hot there. I'll bring some shorts and get some jeans in there. You know, get a few black tees because those are pretty versatile. Uh, you know, get some get some dress up shirts. I get my toiletry bag in there. I bring a few different types of pair of shoes. And there you go. You're good to go. You throw it all in one bag. I get this big duffel bag that I use for pretty much everything, and uh, yeah, it gets the job done. But when I get home from a trip. I'm always super tired. I'm always kind of hungover. I might be a little under the weather. I mean, just last night, you know, people that listen to this pod know I was in Montreal a few weekends ago. 
just last night I finished unpacking from Montreal. That's insane. <laughs> you let it persist and for that, what, two my, weeks? And that might have to do with the fact that, you know, I'm a single guy and I can kind of just have my room a mess. It wasn't like a mess, but I can kind of work within the the kind of uh, un categorizedness of my room like i can i can just kind of pull stuff from my bag that i didn't wear that i want to wear to work you know i i can kind of maneuver around it if if i had a significant other in my room all the time i'd be like okay i can't really do this but uh yeah i mean when i get home from a vacation the last thing i want to do is unpack it it takes too much time and i i also feel like when i do laundry the thing i hate the most is folding my clothes and putting them away so i feel like this is kind of a problem that i have i i don't like putting clothes away it's just it just feels stupid to me i don't feel like anyone is like you know what i just really love doing is folding <laughs> clothes and putting them away but i also think i couldn't i i totally disagree with you i think when you're coming home from a trip you just you open the suitcase you immediately dump it all out you you do your laundry you sort it into colors whites dry clean only athletic wear whatever you got to do and you just slowly knock it out one by one and you already know mm. when you're unpacking where the things are going you know like that's the thing about packing is you're like okay so we're going on a hike one day one day we're going to a beach club okay so i'm gonna I need tennis shoes. I need a workout outfit. I need a swimsuit. I need a cover up. I need flip flop. You're having to doubly think when you pack because you're having to anticipate what you're going to be doing and the things that you may need. Whereas when you're unpacking, it's just like, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. You know exactly what you have ahead of you. Yeah, but that's fun, the packing part, because it's like you're getting to like in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, I might do this that night. Got to get this for that. You know, you're just, you're kind of having fun while you're packing. It's almost like, you're going over what the vacation is going to be in your head. It's like you're you're like letting your imagination run wild with the times you're about to have. Whereas when I get home, all I want to do is sleep. Anytime I come home from anything, a, a long weekend in New York, uh, a night in Rhode Island, or I'm coming back up to Boston. Uh, I don't know. When I was in Costa Rica for 10 days earlier this year, when I get home, no matter what's happening at my house or what time of day it is, I go in my room and I hit the bed and I sleep for as long as I can. Sometimes until I have work the next day. Sometimes until I have work later that day. Sometimes it's until I have to go use the bathroom. I just, that's what I want to do. When I get home, I lay in my bed. And then once I have to go do my next thing in life, I'm busy. Then I'm back in the rotation. So then I have no time to like, Okay, I'm home. What I got to do? I got to unpack. I mean, I'll throw my dirty clothes in the hamper and, you know, the laundry cycle is the laundry cycle, but that's a part of just everyday life as it is. I just, I find no time to unpack. I understand how you can want to nap or sleep and then get swallowed back into the rigors of day-to-day -day life. But you know what you're dealing with. You can chip away at it one day at a time. You can say, okay, before I take a nap, when I come home and crash, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw in a load. I'm going to throw in a load of laundry. That way when I get up from my nap, I can throw it in the dryer and then there's one less thing to do. I feel like this unending mound of things to do before I leave as far as this packing situation goes. And you know what's going to happen because I, I, 
I very much am trying to be a smart packer about this, right? I, I want to bring one bag. I want to not have to deal with it when I get there. I just want to have everything I need. And you know what's going to happen is that I'm feeling so overwhelmed by it. I'm just going to kind of procrastinate and procrastinate and wait until probably the night before I leave and just throw a bunch of stuff in a bag and hope for the best. <laughs> no, but then that's the adrenaline rush. You're like, oh, my God, I only have X amount of minutes to pack because I'm super late packer. Like, that. that's what I'm always dealing yeah. with. Like, oh, crap, my flight is in two hours, I got to pack. Like, that's how I live. Wow, that is a little too dangerous for me. <laughs> but I did when I studied abroad in Italy in college. I was gone for six, seven months and waited until the night before to pack. My mom was okay, like, so what so are you crazy. doing? Yeah, it was yeah that's insane. I lived out of one bag for like six months. Yeah, I've always wondered that because what, so I never really studied abroad. I, I did a semester in Los Angeles. But I, that doesn't count as being abroad. No. Uh, I mean, in, in when you're traveling, you know, domestically, it's easier to bring a little bit more stuff. And my mom, like, mailed me some stuff. But uh, nice. I, I didn't go international. So I, I and all my friends that did that, they're like, yeah, you brought, like, one bag. I was like, how do you do that? I would see, that is crazy to me. I, I, I couldn't do that. Because I have big clothing as it is because I'm a bigger guy. So I... I just feel like I wouldn't be able to pack, you know, four and a half to five months worth of a life into one bag. Oh, it's a struggle for sure. And you have to think. Especially, you... and I'm not even a girl. I mean, girls oh are, have so much more clothes than guys. Of course. The fact. The straight facts. And you also have to think you're going to be gone that long. And what happens during a six-month stretch? A change of seasons. So you're going to yeah. have... You know, it was, to be honest with you, it was a lot of repeat outfits and it was a lot of neutrals, right? I had a black turtleneck. My friends nicknamed me BT because I wore a black turtleneck <laughs> so much. It was just, wow. when you're in Italy, it just plays, right? You can just throw on a black turtleneck and no matter what else you do, you kind of look pulled together. And that okay. was the play. I packed the night before. I packed essentials. And then I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to live somewhere for six months, I'll probably buy some things. And that's what I did. You can, you know, kind mm. of add to your collection as you go. But then unpacking from a six month, you know, stay like that is actually really easy because almost everything that you have, you're going to throw it in a, in a trash bag and give it to Goodwill. Oh, interesting. Because you've just worn the hell out of it. And you're like, I never want to <laughs> see that black turtleneck. As long as I live, it's dead to me. I will buy a new one. But then all the stuff you buy in Italy, you're just like rocking that Euro look. You're coming back into America. You oh, got yeah. like, you know, you got those like pork pie hats on and you know, you got okay, like ex exotic dresses. No one came back with a pork pie hat. <laughs> I didn't come back from Italy, a 1920s sports writer. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, like, you're smoking those long cigarettes. I'm like, hey, cupcake, I'm back. <laughs> okay, well, I will keep you updated on how the packing situation goes, but... I, like I said, I'm sure I'm just going to wing it and it's going to be a disaster. But hey, I'll be in Italy, so who really cares, right? I, I'll just cope with it. But let's move on to random thing number three. And I'm kind of nervous about this because I don't know what's about to happen. Tom texted me and said, hey, I have a topic that I want to do for three random things. And I don't know what's coming. So this could be either fun or it could be a disaster. So, Tom, the floor is yours. What is the third random thing? So, Michelle, I know you talk a lot about how upset you are that the city of St. Louis lost 
the Rams to Los Angeles. Well, just and... let me quickly say we didn't lose the Rams <laughs> to Los Angeles. They were poached from us in a very, very corrupt way. So there is a difference. Well, so we didn't lose it. It's not yeah. like, you know, a sock that you can't find the mate to. <laughs> just so we're clear. It's a very, very funny analogy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Speaking of packing. That's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. Um, but what I was going to say is I can now relate to your anger of, of having a team poached from me. Oh? The Pawtucket Red Sox, the AAA affiliate of the Red Sox, uh, were unable to come up with a new stadium deal. So the big club, Boston Red Sox, have decided to strike a deal with the city of Worcester, Massachusetts, and they are moving the team about 45 minutes north to central Massachusetts. And it's a very sad day for the state of Rhode Island. Uh, I grew up about five miles from the stadium. It's a place I spent a lot of, uh, you know, summer nights. Every 4th of July for, you know, probably seven, eight years, we'd go for the fireworks. Uh, it's a really sad day for the state. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all getting through it, you know. Uh, Worcester's not far, but it's not the same. You know, it's not home. So, uh, really, really sad. And uh, I, I kind of feel your pain. Um, hmm. I don't really know how to approach this. So, one, sorry for your loss. Losing any team sucks. Two, how dare you? How dare you <laughs> try and compare a triple A team moving 45 minutes up the road to a city putting their heart and soul and hundreds of millions of dollars of public funding on the table only to have it ripped from them in an incredibly, incredibly wrong and public fashion? Listen, Michelle, I don't think that you should be attacking me in this time of, of weakness. Uh, you know, I'm very hurt by the team moving 45 minutes north, which is actually going to be moving closer to where I live now. Uh, it's, it's a sad day for Rhode Islanders and for my family. Uh, actually, my mom and dad are both from Worcester, so it's kind of better for my relatives because they'll so all be able to go to like the game So this is actually like a positive development now. for you. What are you talking about? <laughs> Here's a team in the Rams. sad day for my state, okay? No. No, Tom, here's a team in the Rams that gave me one of the best sports moments of my entire lifetime. I mean, the Mike Jones tackle and the Super Bowl versus the Titans. I mean, as a kid, it's one of those I will never forget where I was moments. You you pour into the team. You love them. You invest in them emotionally, financially. The Rams then go through the worst stretch of football in NFL history and 15, going 15 and 65. I mean, you stay with them through absolute trash football and just misery and then what do they do to repay you they not only leave and go to la where fans are apathetic and couldn't care less then they decide to stop tanking and actually put a good product on the field so they can try and get some fans in the seats and then not to mention after all of that they torture city publicly on the way out they leave you in a hundred million dollar hole and they say this is a bad place that we didn't want to be and not to mention, the person who did it is a native son of Missouri. So how in any way are you going to say you feel my pain when you just admittedly said this may be a better situation for me and my family because now we're closer? I mean... You didn't look, lose Michelle. the team. They're, they're, <laughs> they're no longer... What were they called before? It's not like they were identified well, they by were city the or Pat state. They were called the, no, well, here's the thing. They were called the Pawtucket Red Sox, but the nickname 
you know, their their real name was Pawtucket Red Sox, but the nickname was Paw Sox. Okay. So now what are they? Now they're now they're being called the Woo Sox. That's actually terrible. <laughs> well, no, either you know one how, is bad. So you know how in sports media there's like a bunch of people that love wrestling, and I'm not one of them, but you you probably know because we follow basically the same people on Twitter. Ever like there's so many people that love wrestling. Peter so Rosenberg when that move loves happened, wrestling. Exactly. So locally, when that move happened, all of the Boston sports media people that love wrestling were like, oh, now they're called the Woo Sox because oh, like of Ric Flair. Flair. And I, every time I saw a Ric Flair gif on Twitter that day, because you already know about my hate for gifs. Totally. And uh, another time in the pod, we'll get into the fact that I hate sports media people loving wrestling. It was just the worst mix of, like, oh, my God, I hate this so much. I wanted to throw my phone across the room every single time I saw it that day. But So that just added to my pain, Michelle. I mean, I, I completely empathize with how you felt when you lost your beloved Rams. It was a sad day. Well, the Rams are not beloved to me, <laughs> nor were they at that time. It was more of a thing for the city. You know, the Rams at this point are just, ugh. Um, and at that point, they had been terrible for so long. And Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, had been such a D-bag that you're almost like, go. I hate you. Just go. You know, it's like a bad relationship. You're just like, oh, this is toxic. Get me out of this vortex. But then you you take a step back and you're like, well, that's, you know, now the city's in, in a hole. Now we have a huge dome that we've made, you know, that we've built downtown, what are we going to do with it? Then you think, okay, what about all those people in St. Louis that lost their jobs? What about all that revenue that's all of a sudden not coming in? And then as much as you have disdain for these people in this organization, you have to think, man, that is a bummer that you are leaving because of all the people in my community that I care about that it negatively affects. So if, if, if in any way you're feeling that about Rhode Island, I do feel sympathy for you because it yeah, totally sure. sucks. It totally sucks. Yeah. All those people that work at the great McCoy Stadium, yeah, they're, they're losing their jobs too, Michelle. Come on. But the one more thing I want to say, you, you mentioned a great point about how one of the greatest sports memories of your life was that Super Bowl tackle in the game against the Titans. One of the best sports moments of my life actually came at McCoy Stadium uh, when I was uh, in my formative years. Uh, Willie Mo Pena was down uh, in a rehab stint with the Paw Sox. And it was a 4th of July game, and the game went into extra innings, and Willie Mopena hit a walk-off grand slam to win in the 10th inning. And because it was fireworks night anyways, as he was rounding the bases, they just started shooting off all the fireworks, and they started the fireworks display with the grand slam. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. So probably one of the reasons why I work in sports was because of that moment. Wow, really? So. Yeah, Willie Mopena. I won't even give you a hard time. I won't even. I was gonna give you a hard time saying, yeah, uh, a rehab assignment (laughs) in the minors is really comparable to tackling someone on the one yard line in the last seconds of a Super Bowl. Uh, But you know what? I'm not gonna hate on that for you, Tom. If that was your moment and it got you into sports, I think it's awesome. And I'm sad for you uh, that the Paw Sox are gone. But you know, you still have them. You still have them. I don't have the Rams. My city doesn't have the Rams. You still have your team. Like now I look back on the tackle and when I see it on TV I go, Ugh, Rams. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. I'll always have that Willie Mopena home run. 
Grand Slam, I should say. You should say. Identify it correctly, Tom. All right. Well, um, now that I'm semi-annoyed slash semi-sad for you, I think it's a good time to wrap this up. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk to you next week. Take 101 ESPN on the go with the all-new 101 Sports app. See the latest videos, listen to podcasts, and join the conversation with the 101 Sports app. All right. When I first found out that I was going to be doing a podcast, I promptly made a list of all of my media friends that I wanted to chat with. And Jen Lotta from ESPN is right there at the top of that list. I saved this conversation until we got a little closer to college football season because I want to talk with Jen about her incredible work on college game day. But I also really wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit and let you hear about Jen's story and how her path to this dream job that she currently has wasn't always smooth sailing. So I'm really excited to welcome Jen Lana from ESPN to the pod. As Zoolander would say, she's a slashy. She's a reporter. She's a host, a writer. She's a wife, a mother to two beautiful children. She's a dog mom twice over. She truly does it all. I have no idea. How she manages so many important titles at once and with such grace, but she is going to continue to do it because she just freshly inked a new multi-year deal with ESPN. We're going to congratulate her on that. Uh, But Jen, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for joining me. How have you been? I'm so good, Michelle. It's so good to talk to you. I know I miss you. It's crazy for someone that I saw all of the time on a regular basis in Connecticut. It's weird now that I moved away that I haven't seen you for so long. And that's what people don't get. Like, I would pop into the radio studio at least once a week just to visit you and, like, see what was up. And we would plan a dinner or we would plan a night out on the beach or something like that. So you being gone has really been difficult for me. And this is really the first time that I can articulate this. Well, I am very sorry. And trust me, I miss our beach days and our hangs. It's, <laughs> it's been tough for me, too. We're having separation anxiety. But to give some people some background about Jen, Jen is the first friend that I ever made at ESPN. So you have to kind of think of moving to ESPN and moving to Connecticut as college, right? You're you're coming from a different place. You don't know anyone. You're super nervous. And um, I moved alone. You know, I literally picked up my entire life, my comfortable life in St. Louis and moved to Connecticut. And so I was super nervous. I go to this thing called rookie camp, which is essentially orientation. And I'm looking around, assessing all my new classmates. And in walks this girl. Very cool. She was wearing jeans and a leather jacket and a really cool tank and she plops down next to me and I look at her tank and it's a Michael Jordan tank and obviously it's Jen Lotta who sits next to me and I remember I turned to you Jen and I go oh my gosh is your shirt have Michael Jordan on it are you from the Midwest and you were like yes I'm from Chicago and immediately we both start crying because we're like oh my god I'm from St. Louis we miss the Midwest and I remember the tears just welling up in my eyes I couldn't even help it but I was one of these people who as excited as I was to go to ESPN and I knew that it was just an incredible career opportunity. And of course I'd been in sports broadcasting for, you know, 15 years at the time and knew that I always wanted to get to that level. It was incredibly difficult for me to leave my family, which is based in Northern Illinois and some of them in Southern Wisconsin to venture out here. My career had been literally, I went to Marquette, which is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I got a job in Rockford, Illinois, which is like an hour and 45 minutes from Milwaukee Then I got a job back in Milwaukee. I was there for seven years. Then I got a job in Chicago. Meanwhile, my family is literally never more than an hour away from any of those places. So super spoiled in local news and 
sports broadcasting to be able to be close to my family that whole time. So I was clinging to every representation of Chicago and Illinois that you could imagine, hence the Michael Jordan tank top on day one of ESPN rookie camp. Same here. Obviously, they nicknamed me Midwest Michelle at the network because anything that happens, I would be like, oh, did you know that there's a St. Louis connection there? So we immediately identified that in one another and became fast friends. But, you know, I wanted to have you on the podcast for quite some time for several reasons, but I wanted to save it um, towards football season because you are a feature reporter for College Game Day, which is an unbelievable job. And most of the time on this podcast, I just BS with people I know, which we're going to do later. Um, Absolutely. You're going to get that. But I I was actually a guest on a podcast last week, and they wanted to talk to me about the journey to get to where I am. And I immediately thought of you because I remember when we sat down on Rookie Camp that day, before I, I went in, I was reading Awful Announcing and the Big Lead and all these different things. And we had to go around when we're in the room and say what our job was going to be at ESPN. And I remember you standing up and saying, I'm going to be a contributor to the Colin Cowherd show. And I had, right before we had gotten there, read that there's a good chance that Colin was going to leave ESPN. And so I want to talk to you about the journey because most people look at you and they think, oh, she's a feature reporter on College Game Day. I see her on College Football Live. I see her hosting Sports Center. She has the dream gig. But people don't know that you actually came to ESPN under completely different premises and that your path to get where you are right now is not as smooth sailing as people might anticipate it to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you realize when you get to ESPN is you could go there for a certain reason and it could all change overnight. It could change a month later. It could change a year later. And I think the key to surviving and thriving at the network is to be flexible and to be fluid and to be like somebody who can roll with the punches and who can contribute in a number of different areas. And I'm lucky, Michelle, as you know, that my background in sports prepared me for ESPN in that way, right? I did the small market where I was lugging my camera around and interviewing people on my own, and I was cutting stuff, and I was producing stuff, and I was obviously honing my talent on air as well. But in Milwaukee, I was telling stories, and I was a feature reporter. And then in Chicago, I was covering the Bears, and I was covering the White Sox as a sideline reporter. So all of those experiences really led to me having success at ESPN when three years ago, there was a good chance that I wouldn't have. Because as you stated, I was hired to join Colin Coward's show, and Colin Coward left to go to Fox. And good for him, right? Like, right. never have I begrudged Colin Coward for taking that opportunity and going, but I was definitely left in the lurch. And I remember going to the executives at ESPN and saying, listen, guys, if this doesn't work out, it's no harm, no foul, no skin off my nose. My boss in Chicago said, I can come back. Like, we'll just kind of shake hands and say, sorry, it didn't work out. And the executives were like, no, no, we're going to find a spot for you. So, you know, you know this better than anybody because you and I were paired together very early on in my time at ESPN. The only thing I had done between when you and I hooked up for a radio show with George Sedano was Baseball Tonight. So I was coming off of having worked for the White Sox or for, you know, Comcast Chicago, um, Comcast Sportsnet Chicago, and I was covering the White Sox. And so they threw me into baseball because that was the sport that I had done most recently. And I loved it. I love baseball. I'm a huge Cubs fan, as you and I have gone back and forth about. (laughs) I've said, of all the Cardinals fans in the world, the only one I love more than you is my mother. Well, that's a compliment. She's from Southern Illinois, and she's a huge Redbirds fan. She is. Um, And she always texts me when they're making a run like they had been recently (laughs) for those Cubs. Hey, they're Um, coming. You better look over your shoulder. Oh, trust me. And plus, I live with a guy who works for the Brewers, so 
it's been an, it's been an uncomfortable season for me as a Cubs fan. Don't worry. Um, but so I did baseball tonight, and then you and I were put on a radio show, and that radio show didn't it didn't have success. You know, like when I look at my career, I, I failed at it. I wasn't good, and that was really difficult for me. And I think that we can you know dive deeper into that. But the network was basically like, yeah, don't call us, we'll call you after that. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated because I had never had that type of failure in my professional career. I think I had always, you know, risen to the occasion and done a good job. And this was one time where I hadn't done a good job and people were not pleased with me. They were disappointed and maybe even a little frustrated on some level. Um, But I went home and I remember being uh, home for Christmas in Chicago with my family and just deciding that that wasn't going to be the end for me, that that wasn't going to be how my ESPN story was written. And basically going into every single manager's office who would take a meeting with me and saying, what can I do? I'll do anything for you. Like, give me an opportunity. And it just so happened that there had been some movement on the digital side of things where uh, Tony Collins had been moved into more of a sports center role and she had been doing digital work. And so there was an opening there and I just started doing digital work for them. And after I did digital work for a little bit with them, I had an opportunity to do a feature. And I did a good job on that feature, and they gave me another feature. And I did a good job on that feature, and they gave me another one. And after I had put together a dozen or so good features, College Game Day came to me and said, you know, we're looking for a third feature reporter. You won't be used every single week. We're going to use you intermittently, but is that something you're interested in? And, you know, I would love to say that that's where the story ends. It doesn't. You know, since then I've done... I've posted first take when Molly Karam has been on vacation. In the last few months, I've done Sports Center. Um, I feel like I've done all of these different shows. Uh, last year, I was hosting College Football Live for the network, and I feel like all of this came about because I wouldn't let that failure of the radio show define me and my career at the network. Well, I understand how you would feel that way, Jen, that it was from a place of failure. I don't view it that way. I view it as you came to do this one specific role. You were thrown without really any preparation or thought process into a completely different role. It was just kind of like, hey, go into this, Jen, sink or swim. Yeah, and that's definitely how I felt. It was, um, but here's the thing. I'm such a hard worker, and I know like that sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but literally that's how I have gotten to where I am. I just really try to outwork the next person. And so every day I would go into that radio show, and I would start early on, and I would watch SportsCenter, and I would watch our, our programming so that I was up to date on the stories that we were airing, and I would just start studying, and I would study my brains out. And I remember one day specifically, Michelle, where the topic of conversation was about Nick Saban's assistants and which of Nick Saban's assistants would would most likely be hired as head coaches next. And having never covered college football before, in my mind, I was like, okay, step one, who are Nick Saban's assistants? Right. Right. Like, because I wasn't that invested in that college football world. So that was how my day would start. It was, okay, here are the assistants. What are their backgrounds? Okay, this guy could go here, maybe here. But even then, it's all just like surface knowledge. It was nothing that I was like passionate about. It was nothing that I knew a ton about. I was just trying desperately every day to keep up. And I could feel the stress of that situation affecting my life. I mean, you know this because you're my friend, but I gained a bunch of weight. I, my face broke out tremendously. And when I talked to my doctor, my doctor asked a simple question. It was like, how much stress are you under? 
And I was like, oh, an extraordinary amount of stress. I've just been given a radio show. I don't even know my co-host. Like, we were thrown into the studio together. We're trying to develop chemistry on the fly. I'm not really sure that it's going to work out. But every day, I am busting my ass to prove to these people that I can do this. And, you know, it was it was only, I think, like 20-some shows because it was during baseball postseason. So there mm-hmm. were a lot of days we weren't on the air, uh, which doesn't help either, right? Because now you've got a long break before you're on the air again, and you're trying to pick up where you left off, but you left off six days ago. And so it was just a very challenging environment. But I've never been one to back down from a challenge, so I thought that if I just kept working and working and working and exhausting myself in the preparation – that I would be successful. And management just decided that it wasn't enough. It wasn't good. And pulled the plug on me being on that show after 22 or 23 shows. That's what I think a lot of people don't really understand about this industry, right? They think, oh, if you're a writer, you can be a talk radio show host. Or, oh, because you were hired to be you know, the contributor to the Colin Cowherd show and you were going to be used in this capacity, sure, you can then fill three hours of content as a talk show host, which you've never done before. It's like being a painter, right? And then they're like, hey, because you paint walls, why don't you become a makeup artist? Painting walls is the same as painting a face, right? You're like, no, it's actually quite different. There's a lot of different tools and nuance to this. That's a really a great analogy because that's exactly the case. You know, in some level, we're all sports broadcasting, but doing the three-hour radio show would have been incredibly different than being Colin Coward's, you know, uh, foil or, you know, contributor. And I think we've seen now how Colin's uh, partner has been utilized in the Fox space um, on his show on that network. So very different, right? Um, but I think the most difficult thing for me was that someone gave up on me. Um, and, and, and probably rightly so, because I just wasn't doing a good enough job to justify keeping that job. Um, but I also think that there's a part of me that now in retrospect, even though it still feels like a scarlet letter on my career, like I still have to carry that flag of, I tried my best. I really thought I could do it in the end. It wasn't good enough. And they took me off of the show. There's something to be said for being able to wear that and not feel like I have to run away from it, not feel like I have to change the details of what happened to make me feel better about it. Like, I'm okay saying I tried something and it didn't work out because ultimately some other things did work out. Yeah, and not all shoes fit. And it's a stepping stone that got you to where you are now. And I also think the most important thing is that you didn't give up on yourself. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, again, I have a sports background, right? You and I have talked about this a million times. My dad is a coach, so I feel like I'm one of those people who give me all the coaching, give me all the feedback. I want to know when I'm not doing what people and my coaches and my superiors want me to do so that I can just do it better. So I think like having that background and having that mindset is really why I was able to pull myself out of that space and still go on to have success at ESPN. Look, they... The network let go of a lot of people during the three years that I have been at the network. And as difficult as it was to lose some of those friends and some of the people who I really connected with during my time at ESPN, I have to be proud of the fact that three years ago, this fall, they were basically going to walk away from me because they didn't think that I had value. And over the last three years, I've been able to prove to them that I have value and sign a new deal with the network.
So I saw The Rock. Yes, I follow The Rock on Instagram. Embarrassing. Love I know. Him. I love him. <laughs> so you may have seen this, but it kind of ties it all together. He posted this thing and he basically said, cheers to dreams that don't come true because sometimes they're the best thing that happened to you. So here you are. You think, I've made it. I'm going to be a contributor at ESPN. I'm going to be on a radio show with Colin Cowherd. My dream has come true. And then it doesn't happen. But then it ends up being the best thing that could happen because instead, I, I think had you been in that role in radio, you may not have been afforded these different opportunities to be on all of these various properties with ESPN. And you have such a wide skill set that you can do all of these different things. Because when you're on a daily radio show, it's such a grind. So instead of you doing a daily radio show, you end up on what many people would argue is ESPN's biggest property in college game day. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Because as a consumer of College Game Day, from a fan perspective, I've always been so fascinated about the inner workings of College Game Day. So what you do on that show uh, is that you do features for them. So I want to know about the feature process. Most people, they turn on College Game Day, and the features, let's be honest, are really the thing other than, you know, the headgear and the player and the things that you're getting. Those are the things that you take home with you. You're like, oh, did you see that amazing feature that Jen did on the, on this family? Or did you see the feature that Tom Rinaldi did on on the on walk-ons or whatever those are the things that you you take with you so tell me a little bit about the feature process how does it go from just a concept an idea to you actually telling someone's story well it's like anything else we get ideas from everywhere so that means that producers on game day uh feature reporters sometimes you know an sid will call us up and say hey i've got this guy who not very many people know about he has this incredible backstory um you know he didn't have a refrigerator when he was a child he lived in this type of poverty he kept his milk and his bread in a white styrofoam cooler and you're like whoa you know and so so all it takes is something like that to like just catch your attention and then basically uh, uh, as a feature reporter or as a producer you write up a pitch and pretty short, you know, you don't want to bore people with details, but you want to just say, like, this is the person, and this is what's going on with them, and this is why they're relevant this year, and this is why it would make a good feature. Then you have a group of managers that are going to basically look over the pitch, and they're going to decide whether or not it's game day worthy. Now, here's the thing that I always say I've learned, because at the beginning of my time with game day, I was so overly ambitious, right? Like, I was, like, digging and digging and digging, and I was calling SIDs, and I was reading through magazines, and I was I would do Google searches, Michelle, as silly as it sounds, that were like, college football, death. College football injury, college football accident, college football trauma, college football adversity. I mean, like, you can imagine the things that I was, like, excavating from the depths of the Internet, right? Right. Um, And that's just, like, sometimes how something comes across or how you find something. But um, there's, like, a matrix that I always say exists in college football for game day. And the matrix is kind of like the crazy hot matrix. Which Wait, hold on. Yeah, what's the crazy hot matrix? I don't know this. Right. right. So the crazy hot matrix is one of those um, visual aids that you're supposed to use when determining whether or not to date a woman. And on one side of the matrix is the crazy axis. And on the other side is the hot axis, right? So it goes from 0 to 10 on both sides of the axis, right? Crazy 0 to 10, hot 0 to 10. 
And you don't want to go too crazy, right, because that's the no-go zone. But you also don't want to go too hot because that's a unicorn. So, like, you have to find a spot on this crazy hot matrix where you have wife material or fun material or date material. I'll have to send you, have to send you a picture of it because I'm probably not articulating it that well. Does that make sense? Basically, does the hot trump the crazy? Or can you find a heat spot on the map that's a good place to settle in? Exactly. So there's this line that goes up the middle of it, right? And it basically talks about how if you're at the, if you're under the hot crazy line, you're safe. If you're above it, it's either a no go because she's too crazy and not hot enough, or she's too crazy and too hot and like then it doesn't even exist, you know. Or she's not crazy. I'm sorry. So if she's not crazy, if she's a zero crazy and she's a ten hot, then she's a unicorn and she doesn't exist. Oh basically God. saying that all of us women are crazy on some level. Sure. So when it comes to game day, it's similar in that regard, right? You've got your popularity scale on one side as far as, like, how well-known an athlete is or how well-known a program is. And then you've got your, like, unique story axis on the other side. The more well-known an athlete is, if he's in a Heisman race or if he's, like, the leading rusher from the previous season, then the story doesn't have to be like that blow you away, right? It can basically just be like, here's Ed Oliver. You probably want to know him because he's going to be in the Heisman conversation this year or Will Greer, quarterback for West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But, oh, but if, if it's not somebody well-known, then they have to have an extraordinary story. We did a story on a young man last year from James Madison whose father passed away while he was playing a game. And he learned about it during his game and went on to have this incredible game. Well, most people wouldn't be able to have known Trey's name, but because his story was so extraordinary and so touching, we were able to do the piece. So I always talk about that matrix of like the college game day stories and trying to, you know, fit them there on the matrix in the go zone versus the no go zone, right? Like I could tell you about this guy who plays for a little known small college, but if his story isn't fascinating or extraordinary or so touching is probably not going to get greenlit for game day. So it took me a little while to figure out kind of that balance of how well-known the athlete is, how well-known the program is. And then the other thing, Michelle, is how is the program going to do this year, right? Right. Because you can tell a story about a guy out at, you know, I was going to say Arizona State, a program that you don't expect to do that well, but then again, they've got Herm Edwards out there this year, so there's obviously intrigue there. Sure. But, you know, just a program that just doesn't get a lot of attention, and if they're not going to be very good, then there probably isn't an interest from the game day crew as well. So it's definitely an inexact science, but there are ways of figuring out what stories are going to be told and what stories aren't going to be told, and that's part of the process for feature reporters. And one of the crazy things about College Game Day is that the location changes from week to week, and oftentimes it's based on the games, you know, which teams are winning, which is the most popular game of the week. So once you settle in on the crazy hot matrix story, you hit gold, you know that it's going to hit on on all accesses, then what's the process? Because you have to be at College Game Day on during the weekend a lot of the times to front and tag the story, or a lot of the times you're live on set. So then how early do you start working on these stories, and what does your week look like going from all these different places, trying to put this story together, and then get to the game day location? So it's like anything else. You, if, if you can work in advance, you do work in advance, right? So even right now during the summer, game day knows that there are going to be athletes that we are going to want to feature this season. So last week I was in Morgantown, West Virginia, doing a feature on Will Greer because, you know, he's arguably the best quarterback in the, you know, 
2018-2019 class right now. So they obviously want to do a story on him. I'm headed to Houston tomorrow to do a story with Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver, who you know everyone is talking about as potentially the best player in this year's college class that would be going to the draft next year. Um, so those types of things we can work ahead of time. But once the season gets going and once teams start accumulating wins and teams start accumulating losses, it starts to get a little bit clearer the picture as far as the college football playoff goes but also it gets a little more complicated for us feature reporters because now we're being sent to stories that maybe we didn't anticipate you know if notre dame is here and reeling off eight wins in a row all of a sudden we're looking for a story about notre dame and so all of a sudden on monday night we might be you know assigned a story that you know takes place in south bend and they may want us there on tuesday morning um, and obviously our pieces have to be done. So that means interview questions written, interviews done, interviews logged, and then you uh, start writing the piece, right? So then you start taking the bites from the piece and working in tracks and trying to figure out what the theme is going to be and kind of what the hook of the story is, what makes it different than other stories. And then you write it. And then a producer and an editor sit in an edit suite, sometimes for like 24 hours straight, editing a piece. There are times when I'm getting a piece Friday night and being asked for feedback and to make edits on it, and it's still supposed to air Saturday morning for game day. Meanwhile, Friday night or Friday afternoon, depending on your assignment, you're flying out to the location wherever game day is, and you didn't even find out where game day was going to be until the Saturday night or Sunday prior. So it's a crazy existence in the fall to be a part of game day, um, particularly from a feature reporter standpoint, because not only are you expected to travel to game day for Friday and Saturday morning, but during the week, you're on the road collecting those stories and then putting them together. And this has probably been the most challenging part for me is because I like to take my time. I like to do my best. Mm -hmm. I want to turn in the, you know, the most impressive piece I possibly can. But just from a time constraint, that can be difficult. And there are times when something will air on Saturday mornings, and I'll think to myself, if I just had another day or two to fine-tune this or tweak that or, you know, rewrite this track, it could have been so much better. But you got to get it in because that's, it's the deadline. you got to have it done by Friday night, Saturday morning at the latest, because it's airing Saturday morning on game day, and that's when all of these hundreds of thousands of millions of people are going to see it. And so you're working like crazy throughout the week. You get the story. You, as much as you're reluctant to let it go, you let it go, and you know that it's going to air on Saturday morning. You get to the game day set. What's game day like? You know, What's your call time when you get there? And when you get to set, is it as crazy as it appears on TV? So game day is the most exciting and incredible thing I've ever done in my sports broadcasting career. Wow. And you've done a lot. And I've done a lot. Like this is my 17th, 18th year covering sports. Um, if you include like the last year of college when I was, you know, doing stuff in the Milwaukee area, um, I've covered playoff games. I've, you know, NFL playoff games. I've covered the baseball playoffs and the road up to the World Series. Um, as a fan, you know, I went to the World Series when the Cubs won it all, and that was extraordinary. But just the energy and knowing the amount of work that goes into game day and pulling it off every single week, it's incredible. Um, our call time is usually at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, we all gather in a production office. Um, you know, the producers, the coordinating producer, the executive producer, all of those guys have been putting in the work all week long. Uh, Reese Davis has been writing his lead-ins. He's been, you know, tweaking 
conversations. Where do we want to put this? And and that obviously is a, uh, a, a very big group effort, obviously, with everybody that you see on game day. But you know, you get in there that morning, and there's just like an energy, like a buzz in the production office because everybody's working on their individual projects. Uh, you got your analysts, Des and and uh, Herbie and David are watching film. They're passing like iPads back and forth to one another and looking at plays because they're going to have to break them down on the set in a few hours. There's a woman in the corner who's doing makeup for all of the people. And it's the best is when, you know, Coach Corso gets in there and gets his face powdered up because he's just such a gem of a human being. Um, but it's a fantastic, like, just family atmosphere. And sometimes I feel a little bit like a interloper, like, do they know that I'm here? I wonder if I should say that I'm here. Nah, I don't <laughs> want to mess things up, right? Because right. like, but I, you know, being this third feature reporter where I'm there part of the time, I'm just always fascinated by how smooth the process goes. I'm fascinated how good everyone there is at their jobs, and I just want to be as good as Kirk Herbstreit is at his job, or Reese Davis is at his job, or Maria Taylor is at her job when I step out on the set and present my feature. You talk about all the people behind the scenes and everybody who consumes college game day, they just look at the beautiful baby. No one understands the labor pains that go behind it. And when I was working on Rasil and Canal, we went on a fall football tour and oftentimes our stops would coincide with the college game day stops, which was always so exciting for us. And I remember the first one we went on was in Madison, Wisconsin. They were playing uh, Ohio State and you were there doing a feature and you so, you know how obsessed I am with college game day. You so generously let me come to set that day. And I will never forget looking around and being like, look at all of these people that it takes to put on this grand production of a show and then they shut it all down hours later. It's really something to see. And that's the thing, like, you and I are talking even about the production office, and that's a very small part of the people who are involved. But you have all of the people who are there days ahead of time. Like, I'm talking about weeks ahead of time who are scouting the location, right? One of my good friends that lives uh, here in the same town as me, Rodney Perez, is is instrumental in game day getting off the ground. He scouts locations with Lindsay Lloyd, who is another one of the people who's, you know, hugely involved in the game day process. And then once they decide on the location, then it's, you know, the trucks that go there and and unload all of the game day sets and all of the cameras and all of the logistics in order to put the show on the air. I mean, we're talking about runners who are picking people up from the airport. You're talking about runners who are grabbing food for, you know, Bear and Herbie and Reese yeah. and those guys. Who are there I mean, all day. You're absolutely right. Who are there all day and then who, when the show closes, are still there packing up the production office and packing up the truck and packing up everything, you know, that we have. So we don't leave our mark there, right? I think the goal is always to leave whatever area we've taken over for that 24-hour, 48-hour period better than we've left it. We don't want people to know that we were there. So that takes a lot of people who are there, you know, cleaning up and picking up signs and, I mean, just all of the madness you can imagine, right? It's like having a Lollapalooza on a college campus and then, you know, five hours after the show has concluded, you don't even know we were there. And then you have to do it every week for months. <laughs> right. It goes by so fast, though. That's the other thing that people don't realize is, like, if, if I mean, I guess if you're a fan of a program, you live and die by how your team does on a weekly basis. This college football season flies by. And maybe, again, because I was used to a baseball season that seems to drag on at times, right, 162 days plus the playoffs if your team is lucky enough to do that. But 
college football is done in the blink of an eye. Right. And and that's the other thing about it is you go at such a warp speed for those few months. And then when it's all said and done, you know, you have this incredible season to look back on. And hopefully, you know, we've been able to deliver on a weekly basis and making people's mornings a little more special. What is the best environment that you've been in on college game day? And what is your one bucket list place that you absolutely want to go to? Ooh, gosh. Um, this is a tough one for me. I think I, I had always wanted to go to Tuscaloosa, right? Mm-hmm. It's such a unique spot in college football. First of all, it is so difficult to get to, right? It's almost like it's in its own little, like, <laughs> I don't even know how you would describe it, except that it's got, like, a force field around it, and it's an hour-plus from the closest airport, and you're hopping in the car. And, and so, like, just going to Tuscaloosa is an adventure in and of itself. And then, of course, you've got, you know, how good Alabama has been lately, and there's a huge tailgating environment. And so that was that was a priority for me when I got the opportunity to be there. I think it was last year um, we finally went to Tuscaloosa, God, bucket list, you know, week one this year is at Notre Dame. Um, that's going to be something extraordinary because that Notre Dame fan base is just incredible and just how important football is to that university and, and how their audience is so nationwide. Um, I think that that's going to be a tremendous one. But I got to tell you, every single place brings its own flavor, brings its own spice, right? So right. it's kind of like, right. it's like being able to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. Every single week, you're getting to sample something a little bit different, tasting something a little bit different. You know, there are people who rave about the times that game day has been at James Madison University, you know, a smaller school, but has a tremendously good football program. Um, I think, you know, that Lee Fitting is a, an alumni of James Madison, so he always makes sure that that's a great time, that they're putting on a great show. So I think it just depends on the week. Um, you know, Miami last year was extraordinary. I think that people have continued to rave about it. They weren't sure how it was going to go because they hadn't done game day on campus at the U in forever, if ever. I'm not even sure. And then that ended up being something that people are still talking about. So I think the job of game day is to try to find what makes each spot unique and then making sure that the audience at home is so acutely aware of that, that, that when they leave, they know what the uniqueness of that place was. Absolutely. Uh, when we went on the fall football tour, I remember first week we go to Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm like, this is the best college campus environment ever. I can't believe I never visited here when I was in college. And then the next week we go to Baton Rouge for LSU-Bama, and you're like, oh, will anything ever beat this? You're, you're so right. It's like week to week, it almost tops itself without even trying. Exactly. And that's the best thing about it is that if you just embrace each place for what it offers, you're going to have a great time. Okay, so I want to bring this full circle. And like we mentioned at the top of this interview, we are two Midwestern girls. You're still on the East Coast, but that got circumvented and plopped on the East Coast. And the whole time that we were there, there were things that we loved about the East Coast, but we'd be like, oh, you know what I miss about the Midwest is this. So the other day I couldn't sleep and I put together this list of things that I miss about the East Coast. And I want to run through it with you. I would love to. First of all, can I just say as your friend, I'm not loving that you're not sleeping. Oh, like yes. Immediately my, my mom vibe goes off and I'm like, why aren't you sleeping? What can we do to fix that? But we can talk about that later on. Just so you know, the very first thing I thought of was 
why is Michelle not sleeping? Well, I'll tell you why. I talked to Mike Golick Jr. about this when I had him on the pod because I have to wake up at 4 a.m. And so I'm staying up late. Like the Cardinals are playing the Dodgers right now. West Coast starts. So you stay up super late to watch the game. And then at that point, you're like, oh, well, what's two hours really going to do me at this point? You know what I mean? It just becomes this vicious cycle that you can't break out of. But you're a mom. So you understand this. Your sleep patterns are erratic, too. Totally. Although I will say this, my daughter has recently started sleeping through the night. Oh, and I would argue there is nothing greater than a child who at one point was waking up every two hours to be sleeping through the night. Like oh. I feel like a brand new woman. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and just in time for the fall, too. Exactly. She's like, she knows. <laughs> she does. She's like, oh, I better get on this because mom's going to be busy soon. Um, OK, so let's run through this. Things I miss about the East Coast. Number one, the beach. Mm, well, because there's so much of it. I know. Right? I know. If you came out and visited me, and we would zip over to the Long Island Sound Beach, and then you've been to the Hamptons, right? Where yes. you would you go and the Jersey Shore, and there are people who rave about like going up to Maine, and and you've run some races up there on the shore. I, I agree. Like the beach here, it seems so accessible. Whereas in Chicago, yes, you could get over to Lake Michigan in a breeze, right? Or even in Milwaukee when I lived there. But it wasn't the most inviting beach. Yes, it's a it's a little different type of a beach and in the Midwest in now. Yeah, I'm landlocked, so trust me. On the weekends when I would come visit you on the beautiful shores of the Connecticut beach, and we would lay out. Now I'm just like, oh, okay. Does anyone have a pool I can hang out at? Oh no. All right, I'll just sweat here on a bench. <laughs> Although I think you're doing all right. I saw you were on a rooftop pool recently, and I was super jealous. Yeah, but as beautiful as the rooftop pool was in St. Louis, it's really not the beach. <laughs> Let's say that. Um, okay. Well, speaking of that. I miss how on the East Coast, people casually just say, oh, I summer in Cape Cod or I summer in the Hamptons. Like summering somewhere is a verb there. Oh, you're so right about that. And I'm thinking about when you and I went to a beach party once, like beach parties are a thing out here. Yes. Like people have houses that are on the beach and you walk through their living room out to their deck and then right onto the sand and into the water. Like that's a real thing that I'm definitely uh, a huge fan of. Um, so that's a good one. What about the driving out here in the East? Because I feel like drivers in the East give no X. Oh, no, they're is super that erratic. Is There's, that something different in the Midwest? Um, I think Midwest drivers are better than East Coast drivers, but I think it's because of the Midwest East Coast mentality. So on the East Coast, people are just a little rougher. You know, they get to the point and they don't sugarcoat things. And that's how they drive. They're just like, get out of my way. Get in the left lane if you're, or get in the right lane if you're going to go slow. I feel like in the Midwest, people tend to meander a little more, kind of take their time. You know, even the honking out here is a little bit more polite. You know what I mean? Totally. It's a toot toot versus a ah. Right, right. I do think, I do think that you may have stumbled upon why I am having success out here on the East Coast, though. Because <laughs> I do, I do think that I am more of the ah driver and also the person who basically tells it like it is, right? Like, how many right. times during the course of our friendship have you been like, that's one way of putting it, Jen, but maybe we'll soften the edges a little bit and maybe we won't say it exactly that way. <laughs> right, right. But see, maybe you were just a, a Midwesterner that was bred to be on the East Coast. You have to look at it that way. Yes, I think that's a great way of looking at it because that's the only way to survive. Really, again, you're right. I think that people on the East Coast um, are in a little bit more of a rush, right? Mm-hmm. Take away your Hamptons and your summering on the coast and all of those things. I feel like they're much more efficient. Where in the Midwest, there's more of a laid back, um, 
neighborly attitude. Um, and I think that that it, it's so it's so lovely about the Midwest. But if you're a Midwesterner and you try to survive that way out here on the East Coast, you're going to get eaten alive. Well, that leads me to my next and final one. One of the things I love about the Midwest is that everyone is super friendly. When I walk my dog, everyone's like, hello, good morning. I don't love it when I'm getting up super early and I have to speak to people on the elevator. And I miss about the East Coast that you can get on an elevator or you can go somewhere and no one is expected to speak to you or you're not expected to speak to anyone. Uncomfortable silence is normal there. Okay, so I think this is why you and I are friends because... Yes, we're both Midwesterners, and yes, we both are, you know, can be very kind and very lovely, and certainly we have, you know, lots of friends. But I'm similar with you where there are times where I don't need small talk. I had a call with, um, except for this like podcast, a cable company recently, <laughs> hashtag branding, right? Um, with like a cable company recently, and you know, when you're calling and you just want to get something done, either you're trying to lower your bill or you're trying to figure out what this $20 charge is on your bill or something like that. Sure. And I'll never forget the woman was like, and how are you doing today? And I was like, you know what, Rhonda, I'm having a real crappy day. I don't really have time for small talk. <laughs> and I remember that my husband was like, really? <laughs> like, you don't always have to be that person. But it was one of those instances where, like you said, I'm in the elevator. I just want to get on and get off. I don't really want to know how you're doing or how your kids are doing. Yeah, but you're dealing with someone on the East Coast, so Rhonda was probably really excited to just get to the point. Rhonda was probably from Ohio. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> 800 number, you never know what you're going to get. Um, but yeah, those are all the things that I missed about the East Coast. I was thinking the other day, do you think that I could just casually drop in here and be like, oh yeah, I'm summering at the Lake of the Ozarks. Do you think that might work, that I could translate that here to the Midwest? Well, time for a minute can you tell me about the lake of the ozarks because my only experience with it was watching ozark oh don't even get me started and i was like is this a lovely place or is it a scary place like i haven't decided it looks incredible i love the lushness of the trees Mm -hmm. i love the lake obviously Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm a lake baby like when i look at houses and i see that they have lake property i'm like buy it and my husband will be like yeah but it's pretty dilapidated i'm like i don't care buy it i'll fix her up or it (laughs) okay yes i am with you first of all we have to get you down to the lake of the ozarks we will summer there i will take you we'll have a great time i cannot tell you now i'm getting all east coast on this how much i hated the show ozark and here's why great show great plot development jason bateman great actor appreciate all that This is supposed to be set in the Lake of the Ozarks in the summer. There is no way Homeboy could wear a full flannel button-down and jeans. He would suffocate to death in the humidity. I I don't understand how that was not taken into consideration. I'm like, what are these people wearing? You cannot wear this in the summer in the Ozarks. Very good point. I think that's always one of the things that um, when you're from a place that a film or a movie or a television show is supposed to take place, you always notice those little idiosyncrasies that they get wrong, right? It's like they didn't do their deep dive on the research. They didn't just start hobnobbing with locals. But, and to your point, in St. Louis or in the Ozarks area, people are really nice. So if you would just ask people, I'm sure they would tell you this is what your wardrobe should be for your show. But I digress. Um, well, and it leads I, uh, me to believe that they did not shoot it in the Ozarks, and it was not in the summer because they would have known. Hey, maybe I should throw on some shorts. 
your actors are going to be dying. Right. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about the people that live up in the hills or in the mountains, like irrationally angry. And they think that you can just kill people for sport or because they get in your way. Like, that's not very Midwesternly. No, it's not. And I can promise you, if you have enough money to have a house up on the hills, your life is pretty good. You're not thinking about killing anybody. You're just thinking about a barbecue. <laughs> Perfect. So now that I've officially ruined the show Ozarks for you, uh, we'll wrap this up. But Jen, thank you so much for doing this. It's so great to talk to you. I miss you so much. And let all of our listeners know what you have coming down in the pipeline, what they can keep an eye out for. Well, it's so um, great of you to say. I miss you tremendously. I think it's really important when you find people who you um, who you click with, who you identify with, who you have things in common with, and who you you feel strongly about that you maintain some relationships. So it's really important for me to, you know, make sure that you and I are still getting together, even if our, even if our beach trips have to be virtual in nature now. But like, I also think that like you were saying about ESPN, because there's a competitiveness, because people are always, you know, striving to get better and be better and climb, you know, it's really important when you find a friend at a place like ESPN, like I found in you, it's important to like maintain that friendship as well, because I think like you and I experienced so much together and there are things that I could tell people about ESPN and they would be like, wow, that's really interesting. But because they didn't live it with me, they don't get it. Like you get it when I talk to you about some of the, you know, just the ins and outs of the place. And, you know, I even mentioned to you the other day, I was like building two, like, well, people don't know what building two is, but you and I know that that's the radio building. And that's where we did a ton of our work early on there. Right. Okay, so doing a lot in the upcoming season. Obviously, college football is the insane time of year for me. Um, Like I said, flying out tomorrow to do a feature with Ed Oliver, and then I'm flying to Chicago because I'm also in the process of doing a Monday night countdown feature with Zach Miller of the Chicago Bears. Um, There will also be another NFL feature that I'm working on that Zach Miller is tied to that will be airing later in the football season. Um, I'm also working on a Will Greer piece for college football. I'm also working on a Sam Ellinger. He's the... uh, recently named quarterback for Texas. Um, all of those will be airing within the next few weeks. I am also hosting Sports Center the first week of college football. So Saturday morning leading into game day, uh, we've got a full slate of features already produced for that week, so I won't be on game day. But nowhere else I'd rather be than sitting on the Sports Center desk and uh, teeing up my pals who will be in uh, South Bend for the Michigan-Notre Dame game day. And then um, doing college football live whenever I can. And that's a show that, you know, is done from Bristol or from wherever, where we bring together, you know, three or four college football minds every single day and talk about what's going on in the college football world Monday through Friday. So going to be very busy this fall, lots of frequent flyer miles, but that just means that I should have a free trip to St. Louis in my future. And to the Ozarks, absolutely. And I love that you're doing SportsCenter. Every time the target moves, you just continue to kill it and knock it down. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud of all your success. And it was so great to chat with you. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you, love. Thanks again to Jen Lotta for her time and for sharing her story. And thanks, as always, to Tommy Freeze Pops. Always love kicking it around with him. And thank you for listening. You know the drill. If you haven't already, or even if you have, have your aunt, have your friend, have your barber, have your neighbor, whomever. Head to Apple Podcasts. Find Small Talk, subscribe, rate, leave a review like this one from Topherlicious, who says this is easily the greatest podcast I have ever had enter my earlobes. Thank you, Topherlicious. I appreciate that. I appreciate you listening. We will be back in action next week with Saruti and Freeze Pops and a little post-show pod banter. But until then, good night, Boston. Thanks for listening to Small Talk. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app. 